I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Intercooler Podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organisations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast, and JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars, and importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So whether you're looking to fund a classic, sports car, supercar, or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high-end, expensive unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back the podcast in 2022 and happy new year to all of you and happy new year Andrew. Oh hi Dan how are you? Yeah good do you know what we were just talking before we came on and it's enjoyable having some time off particularly over Christmas when you just indulge but it gets to this point in the year and I just want to get back to work and I want to get out of bed early and I want to be productive and do stuff that's good for me. I think that just shows how lucky we are doesn't it? You know, because I'm sure there'll be an awful lot of True. people who, probably most people, who probably don't regard the return to work on January the 4th as being anything other than something they absolutely have to do. Um, but we've, um, yeah, we're, um, we're good to go, aren't we? Uh, we've got, um, I mean, TI has a very interesting year ahead of it. Um, and, you know, having really done very little for the thick end of a fortnight, um, other than eat and drink to excess, um, I'm just completely ready to go. Um, so we're going to have, we're gonna, well, hopefully more than anything else, we'll have a lot of fun this year, but it's going to be, um, yeah, if you subscribe to the app, um, you're going to see an awful lot of stuff happening there. And obviously we'll carry on with the Instagram stuff. Um, and we'll continue to do this podcast and who knows, maybe some other kinds of podcasts too. Um, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a fun and interesting year, I think. I hope anyway. It will be. And I am now full time on the intercooler. So it's you are. not working for anybody else now. It's just TI. Um, which is a significant step for 
me and for the business itself. Um, it just means I can be fully focused on turning this thing of ours into the the sort of oh here we go the multi-platform media brand that we want it to be. Um, and there's there's a, an awful lot to do, but I, I just can't wait to get cracking with it all. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how you and I spent um, the Christmas break. I'm talking cars, really. And I saw from your, your Twitter or your Instagram that even over Christmas, you were knocking about in your catering. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't really planning on it. Uh, in fact, I, 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 I was sort of feeling that I hadn't really driven very much very far um, because um, if I had any long journeys to do, they would all be with family and that sort of thing. And you can't really be an idiot um when you're doing that and I, I was just sort of feeling the need to go and drive something silly and i went to the shed fully intending to get the old landy out because you know <laughs> what, what 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 better in um when stuck in the middle of nowhere in, in, at this time of year and i just saw the catering there and i just you know I, it's, I just haven't driven it for a bit it's the wrong you know it's just not the sort of time of year in which you know a lot of people are adding that sort of thing and i just thought land rover catering catering land rover, catering um and so I can't even remember. I think I did have some purpose. I can't remember what it was, why I took it out or what I had to do. But I just had a hoop. It was just fun. It was, and it's a different sort of fun because everything's cold, everything's wet. So you just see, so you're just skidding about all over the place. And, um, you know, and, and the remarkable thing about catering, I, I posted something on Instagram and people were talking about, well, didn't you get covered in mud? And if you've got decent side screens, you don't at all. Um, you know, you need to kind of hose it off afterwards because I'm, you know, I don't really want to put a car caked in road grind back in the shed um but it was just yeah it was just kind of sort of life affirming decent heater so you keep warm yep what else do you need just get out there um i'm not so precious about it that i'm worried about you know it getting a bit muddy or whatever you know and it takes you know if you if you hose it off immediately it comes off pretty much as easily as it went on um and then you stick it back in your shed and you've just had a completely different sort of motoring experience um at a, at a time of year that, you know, you wouldn't be expecting to do it. And, um, yeah, it was good fun. It was good fun. In the meantime, I understand you've been having a, a rather different sort of sort of sporting British car experience. <laughs> it's the other end of the spectrum, isn't it, really? Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I've been knocking about for a couple of weeks in a Bentley Flying Spur. Um, so big, <laughs> sal- yeah. big limousine saloon car, W12 engine. Um, I mean, it must be, what, four or five times the weight of your car and probably four or five times think, the yeah, power as well. So I would think, yeah, probably thick end of... I mean, the, my catering is... Uh, it's a cross-flow car, which is very light. I, I would think it's about 500, maybe 520. And a Spur is, what, 2.4, something like that? I would have thought so, yeah. So it's... Yeah. And it's getting on well five, five times. times the weight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very different sort of car. And actually, um, after this, I'm going to take it for a, a bit of a spirited drive on some roads I know well. I didn't get to over Christmas because I always had my other half with me, and that is frowned upon. I will let Ooh. you know. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Me too. Very much Utterly so. frowned upon. Um, well, just but, basically not allowed. It's not allowed, yeah. You just don't dare, do you? Um, and yeah, not necessarily my kind of car, but I just love it. When you're doing a long journey, I love... A big luxury car with a long, long wheelbase, those air springs, and it's just quiet and serene, and you're just comfortable. And there's a lot to be said for that. Um, but I, I will, I'm going to head off this afternoon and uh, drive this car, as I said, on some winding roads near to me. Um, and I'll, I'm going to produce a video for the Instagram site 
because I want to know, does this thing actually handle? Um, maybe it's a bit of a inane question for a two and a half ton limo, but I'm still, I, I'm intrigued to know, does it handle? Because I suspect probably it's quite good. Um, but I will report back on that later on. Uh, the, the, yeah, I mean, they are pretty amazing. And just in terms of the sort of the bandwidth they can get into those cars now, what you know, what car manufacturers who know what they're doing can now do, particularly with um, with dampers and air springs, um, the way that they can... And we've seen this, haven't we, with things like the Porsche Taycan. Um, the way they can make cars that are really, really heavy still feel, if not agile, then certainly deft, I think is probably the word, uh, and pleasant and consistent and accurate and um, all those things that we look for in a car i mean it's never going to have an awful lot of steering feel it's certainly you know you're not you're not going to be sort of you know, adjusting it on the throttle as you go through the corner <laughs> um but you know given how comfortable and i you know i know flying spurs quite well um and yeah given how well they ride i suspect you're going to find it's um yeah terrific given the kind of car that it is yeah of course good yeah. well yeah i, I mean swap, we'll swap it for the caterham on that kind of road but nevertheless no okay well we'll find out soon um Okay, well, actually, this week we're talking about the history and origins of sports car racing. Um, now, before we start, I don't think you need to be the sort of person who goes to Le Mans every year and spends the entire night throughout the race camped out at the Porsche curves. You don't need to be a Le Mans addict. I think we're going to tell you a few things you didn't know before, keep it lively, keep it interesting. Now, I suspect some of you listening are going to be new to the TI podcast. Um, and so you might not be familiar with what it is that we do here. Really, it's just me and Andrew, a couple of car journalists with close to 50 years of experience between us in the industry. That's worrying, isn't it? Uh, I'm talking well, about give, cars. Give, given that I'm probably contributing 35 of them, <laughs> yes, it, it is quite... <laughs> yeah, it's not entirely equitable, let's say. Um, it, it's, we, we, we spend 40 minutes, 50 minutes each week talking about cars, talking about motorsport, hopefully in an interesting well-informed um, education and, and I hope entertaining way um, and if there's anything you think we should be talking about then get in touch because people often do and we often pick up their subjects the fact fact is if we do let's call it 50 of these a year we need some ideas that haven't come from our own heads don't we um, so, well yeah, I mean it's, it's just often that you know because you know it's just you and me um, and we're probably not as organised as people think they are, and, and, and that these podcasts are probably somewhat less planned than people may suspect they are. So, you know, there will always be gaps, and people are sort of saying, "Oh, why haven't you done a podcast on such and such?" And the reason is often not because uh, we've decided not to, but because it's just kind of fallen down, you know, the back of the sofa in our in, in, in our minds, and we just haven't done it. So, you know, if there's something that you know, and also, you know, this what what podcast number are we up to now? Ninety something. Ninety one. Ninety one. Um, you know, which means we started doing these nearly two years ago. Um, and there may be all sorts of subjects which, you know, there are other ways of, of revisiting. Um, because, you know, there is only a certain finite amount of stuff to talk about, but there is an infinite amount of ways in which you can talk about it. So, yeah, um, get in touch. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about and um, we'll do that. Excellent. Yeah, we will. Uh, okay. The origins and the history of sports car racing. Let's keep it sort of general at the moment. Um, what is the big appeal? What is the allure of sports car racing? What's the specific challenge 
It's endurance, really, isn't it? That's the big one. It's endurance, yeah. And, and I would just say now that we're, we're talking about this now because I think, you know, you and I have discussed in this podcast many times before the cyclical nature of sports car racing, how it, it never seems to find an equilibrium, does it, where it's just kind of really good, really not, cool. Not like F1 like has, where yeah. it's been one championship and you can trace it all the way back to 1950. No, and also in terms of its popularity... Um, you know, someone will come up with a new set of rules um, and everyone will pile in and it'll be really cool for a bit. And then usually what happens is somebody thinks of a really clever way of getting around the whatever, whatever the fundamental rule is. Um, and they often do that by just spending huge amounts of money. At which stage everybody else thinks, why bother? And everybody runs away from the sport. We saw this quite recently. Uh, and so they have to go back and they have to come up with a new set of rules, which we've also seen quite recently. And then it all, and the cycle kicks off again. And And, and the reason that we are having this podcast today is we're kind of at the dawn of the new cycle aren't we so you know we've got um you know Lamar this year but there is you know there's toyota and there is peugeot and there's glickenhaus and there's alpine and any you other know, competing in this new i mean i know it's technically around last year but you know the, this is the start of the new era of Lamar hybrids uh, and then next year there's the lmdh category coming in which will have porsche and audi and um and Ferrari coming into LMH. So we, we, we appear, don't we, to be at the sort of start of one of those periods where the sport is in the ascendant. Um, and so we just thought it would be quite nice to kick things off, you know, as where everyone is starting to look forward to where it's going, to just have a quick look at where, uh, where it's come from. And I think, I think you're right. I think the, the appeal of it has always been, I think there have been two things actually. One is endurance. Um, particularly when, and we're going to catch this very much in terms of Le Mans, because if we start talking about all the other series that are around the world, because sports car racing is a massive subject, isn't it? Um, and there's, you know, there's been the ELMS and the LMS and there's IMSA and there's this, that and the other. And so we're just going to keep this, you know, quite general about sports car racing and, and, and probably predominantly about the most famous sports car race in the world, which is Le Mans, which started in 1923. And back then, um, you know, W.O. Bentley, um, who had a car there, but it wasn't one of his, it was a private car. You know, he is on record as saying, I think the whole thing's crazy. No one will finish. Cars aren't designed to race for 24 hours. Um, and he simply couldn't, but he only went at the last minute because he felt guilty about, um, you know, having one of his cars out there. And he caught the, you know, the last minute boat. Um, and by the end of it, he was totally captivated. He said, this is the most brilliant event I've ever seen. Um, and you know, and he backed it from 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 there on in. So it has a captivating quality to it. You know, it doesn't tend to have that sort of wheel to wheel component that um, you know Formula One has when it's good. Um, but it does have a heroic quality, doesn't it? Uh, because in any, you know, for instance, in any 24-hour race, you're going to get a bit of weather. You're, cert- you're certainly going to have a lot of stuff happening at night time. There's going to be a lot of attrition. There will be accidents. Um, and so it has this totally different dimension. Um, and, and, and also, as a, as a fan, as a spectator, it provides you something you can really get your teeth into. Uh, and also, when it goes wrong... Um, you know, when the car that's been leading the race forever dies on the last lap. It provides a sporting spectacle, a range of emotion and, and everything else, which you just can't get um, in any other branch of the sport. So I mean, to me, that's what it's... What the, 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 to me, it has a heroic quality about it. Um, you know, particularly, I guess, going back to the days when it was really a, a spectacularly unsafe sport to do, you know, spending an hour and a half or two hours in a Grand Prix car is one thing, you know, 
But back in the days when only two drivers per car were doing it for 24 hours, come rain or shine, in flimsy little things, you know, at places like Le Mans, which, you know, even today, I mean, Le Mans would never get signed off as a Formula One track, would it? I mean, the safety standards are just a completely different level um, to what is you know, required at the very highest level of, uh, of motor racing. So, you know, I think there is a, there's a sort of gladiatorial quality to it. There's a, there's, there's a kind of intrepid nature to it. Uh, and also there's the other thing about, you know, these drivers having to work as a team with teammates. Uh, you also get, in my experience, just, you know, sports car drivers. They just seem to be nicer people than Formula One drivers. But, and, and I don't think that's a coincidence because they have to work as a team. They have to get on with their teammates. They have to be thinking about the bloke back in the pits. They can't just get strap themselves into their car and go, right, it's all down to me now. Um, and so, you know, that brings a different quality to it. So there are so many reasons actually thinking about it why why sports car racing it may not be better or, or, or worse than formula one but it is definitely different it's a different kind of appeal um and i've always found it I mean, frankly i probably find it more captivating than formula one because i think it has yielded more good stories over the years okay let me put the opposing view then um yeah i understand what you say i don't think we're trying to find a winner between f1 and sports car racing are we they're, they're just different branches of the same sport and they they each have to do their own thing I find Formula One more thrilling because it's a shorter, sharper sprint race that I can, I can watch it from start to finish um, and really get a feel for the narrative of that race. Um, I also, I know that the cars are faster and there is a sense that actually the world's best drivers are in Formula One um, and maybe the world's best teams are operating there as well. Uh, so I'm actually more drawn to F1 um, however, there is something, I think intrepid and heroic is the word for endurance racing, particularly, you know, they race through the night. Now, I, I'm, I actually don't know the answer to this, and maybe Karin Chandok, our TI contributor, will know. But are they going slower at night just because no. visibility is less? Or are no, they going no, they, the no, same no, speed? They, they, they don't. There are, there are endless examples of um, the fastest lap of the race being set in total darkness. Because um, it's cooler. Because because the air is cooler, um, they're often by the time it gets dark, there are probably fewer cars out there, so there's less traffic, um, and so yeah, you know, so so often the fastest lap of the race will come um, when it's coldest, which is often at like sort of three four o'clock in the morning, um, and you know, and, and if you've been to the morning, you've seen how good um, modern headlights are. Um, you know, it's not like it's daylight for them, but you know, they can they can spot an apex as well. You know, in in the dark as they can in the light. I mean, it, it, but that is another thing which I have always admired. Um, you know, I've done quite a few 24-hour races, very minor ones, um, but I've always been slower. So my, whatever, whether I'm quicker or slower, doesn't matter, but my, wherever I am relative to my teammates in the dry, uh, sorry, in the daylight, I'm always slower at night. Mm, interesting. Um, and I think it's because I've got an imagination. I can remember there was... There's a wonderful bloke called Merrick Cox, uh, who very sadly died recently. He was a complete lunatic. Um, but years and years ago, we shared a, a Renault Clio Cup car, which we raced in Brit car. Um, and, you know, around a UK circuit in daylight, um, you couldn't get a fag paper between our times. But if it was night or somewhere scary like the Nürburgring, um, he was just quicker than me. And, and and I think those guys who are you know the, the the sort of the night masters, the people who actually um, say you know 
give me the graveyard shift. You know, I'll be in the car from, you know, two till five in the morning. I just absolutely loves that. I think, I think those people are wonderful. And, and, and you're, you are right about Formula One having the quicker drivers in them. There, there are any number of examples. Uh, guys like, you know, Jackie Ickes, who is an absolute legend uh, of sports car racing. Um, you know, he, he would say that, you know, by when he went sports car racing in the mid-1970s, by that time, he wasn't anymore the fastest bloke in Formula One. And he went to do it because it was, you know, an easier category in which to participate. You know, Tom Christensen, I think he might have had a testing contract with a Formula One team at one stage. He's never started a Formula One race. He's won Le Mans nine times. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think there is something to be said for that. Um, and that's why I said that, you know, that, that they're not really better or worse than each other. They're not strictly comparable. Uh, each will always have its fans. What I can tell you is that when I go to Le Mans and I'm at the Porsche Curves at half past four in the morning as the sun is coming up, watching these bruised and battered warriors still lapping the track at, you know, 150 mile an hour average, uh, and I'm on my own. There's just nowhere in the world I'd rather be. I just find there is an absolute, there's almost a romance about it. There is an absolute magical component to that kind of experience, which I, don't, I haven't found in any other form of racing. Unless the cars have diesel engines. Unless the cars had diesel engines, we'll, we'll be getting onto those, won't we, I'm sure. <laughs> you have said on this podcast before that there was a moment when a I just diesel stopped. Audi farted past you and you just thought, I don't need this. Well, I mean, at night, <laughs> the problem with diesels um, was that you know, at night, if you're standing there watching this, it's quite difficult to see the cars because the lights are so bright, um, they obscure what's behind them. Um, but you could always hear, though, you could hear a you know, sort of Jaguar V12 or, you know, a Porsche Flat 6 or, you know, an Aston V8 thundering past. And so at least you knew what, it, what was coming and it was great to listen to. And then the diesels turned up and they didn't, make, didn't even make any noise. So you just saw these lights go <laughs> and then they were gone. And, you know, and, and it's the only time, well, until COVID struck, that I, I went for a period of time when I didn't go to Le Mans because between... When I started going to Le Mans, my first one was in 1988 until the diesels came. I'd gone to every one. Um, and then I think it was 14 I started going again and up until uh, COVID I went to you know everyone after that so yeah mm, interesting um, so the <clears throat> one of the curious things about sports car racing and I, th- I can only off the top of my head think of one other branch of motorsport for which this might be true there is a single race that is actually bigger than the entire world championship teams and drivers would rather win Le Mans than the World Endurance Championship, wouldn't they? Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. What's the other one you're thinking and about? Indy. Indy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty um, fair, isn't it? They, they, they would, and it's not healthy, because what you get, uh, particularly when we have the, the dreaded um, balance of performance, is what we've seen in the past are teams so hell-bent on winning Le Mans is that they sacrifice the whole first part of the season to convince the authorities that they're slower than they actually are so that they go to Le Mans with as an optimal a setup as, as possible. And then suddenly, bang, they're like five seconds a lap quicker than they've ever been anywhere. And people will go, well, what happened there? And then what you realise is you've been watching a pantomime and you've actually been watching cars going around far slower than they're capable of because they're all just, you know, sandbagging furiously. And, you know, we understand, don't we, that someone might want to sandbag in a practice session of a race, but not for the entire first part of the season just because you, you, you're so desperate to win one race. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the answer to that is, but, you know, we have seen, haven't we, you know, cars turn up at Le Mans 
and suddenly find a pace that they haven't had before and either win their category or win the race. And we, and it's always left a sort of slightly bad taste in the mouth. Um, so yeah, I don't know. The whole balanced performance argument is, I mean, I think, I think it's a necessary evil because I think, you know, without it, what you often get is, you know, what we saw so often in the past is you just get periods of manufacturer domination, don't we? You know, we remember from, you know, what Audi did at the start of this century, um, what Porsche did in the 1980s, you know, absolute domination. Um, you know, seasons after seasons with barely anything else even getting a look in. Um, and balance of performance does at least address that. So, yeah, I mean, I don't like it, but I think it's needed. But I think it should also be applied a lot more cleverly than has often been the case in the past. Okay, well, let's let's rewind it then. Um, you spoke about the very early days of Le Mans, 1923. Um, when... When did it become a sort of global phenomenon? When when was the first real golden era, do you think? I think, well, I think it, it, it so much depends on your perspective, doesn't it? I mean, you know, those early days, um, you know, it, it absolutely wasn't a global phenomenon at all. I mean, the um, the Bentley that was there in 1923, it was the only foreign car um, in the race. Um, and uh, it didn't win. Um because the car wasn't sufficiently well prepared um and then the following year i might have i think there might have been a belgian car in there but it was but by you know by the end of the 30s you know you had uh by the end of the 20s sorry you had some big players in there guys like chrysler in there stutz which was massive at the time mercedes-benz came in in 1930 and a really proper crack at it um so i think during the 20s um it went from being this sort of slightly curious um you know, sport where people didn't even think that cars would survive. And by the end of it, it was, you know, and, and, and certainly right through the 30s, all the big names, you know, Alfa Romeo, Bugatti, um, Aston Martin, Lagonda, um, you know, all the French companies, you know, Delage, Delage, I mean, they were all completely um, committed to it. So it was, you know, by the, certainly by the 1930s, it was, you know, it was a huge thing. Probably, you know, as it is today, not as big as Grand Prix racing, Um but, you know, the, the very best people, um, you know, the works teams, you know, guys like, you know, Tatsu and Uvalari, um, they all went and did it um, because it was an important thing to have been able to do. Um, and then you kind of get to, well, the last one before the war was 1939, clearly. Um, and then it was um, 10 years before they had another one. Uh, it came back in 1949. Um, and, you know, that was kind of very, very much it finding its feet. But I suppose it became a real prize um, and something which people would... I mean, Jaguar in the 1950s, you know, they built cars just to win them all. You know, there was an entire championship to be, to be done, um, which they weren't interested in at all, which is why if you look at what... You know, we all think of, you know, the Jaguar Deep Dive, what an amazing car, it won Le Mans three times on the trot. Well, go and see what else it won. Really very <laughs> little. Very, very little. Because Le Mans was so important... So they designed these, you know, these beautiful aerodynamic teardrops, which went down the Morsan straight like a bullet. Um, but they never had much power. Um, they didn't handle completely brilliantly compared to some of the other stuff. Um, but they were just designed to win law and nothing else mattered. And, you know, to an extent, and certainly with some teams, that attitude sort of prevails a bit today. Um, but yeah, certainly by, when, if we think of Le Mans in 1955, that terrible way where all those people died. Um, 
you know, all the big all the big works teams were there. Um, you know, works teams from. Uh, mercedes-benz and from ferrari and from jaguar and from aston martin and from porsche and you know, i go on and on and on um it was huge it was absolutely massive as big then undoubtedly as it is today wow um okay so we'll keep going sort of chronologically but i just want to scroll forward very briefly because i first went to le mans in 2008 as a very green young car journalist I was 21 in my first job, six months into my first job. Um, and I sat down with Oliver Gavin, who until very recently was a Corvette factory racer. Great guy. Um, and he told me that the race then was a 24-hour sprint. It's, it's not that they, were, they weren't driving to conserve fuel or to protect the car or to look after tyres or brake brake pads or whatever they were going as fast as they could throughout and he told me that actually it had been that way for quite a long time um so you know and have spoken to plenty of people who raced at Le Mans in the 50s how close was it getting at that point to a sprint were we still a long way off yeah yeah really quite a long way off uh, it's one of the reasons that Sterling never never liked the race he said it's not a race um <laughs> because he says if you're not racing if you're not driving flat out all the time um and, and so what they used to do, um, I'm just trying to think, well, specific instances, 1959, when Aston Martin won the race and Sterling was one of their drivers, but he didn't win it because he'd been given a car. Um, well, he'd been given a car with um, fewer main bearings than the others, which meant it had less internal friction, which meant it developed more power. Um, but it was less likely to last. And he was basically told to go out there and break the Ferraris, who were the big opposition. And that's what he did. I mean, he just went off like a lunatic. Um, and Ferrari started falling by the wayside. Inevitably, you know, his car broke. Um, and Carroll Shelby and Roy Salvadori swept through to win the race. Uh, and, so, and so that's what you did. If you wanted to drive flat out, you did it strategically to break the opposition. But you never did it in the hope that you would, or the realistic hope that you'd finish the race, because you just wouldn't. Because if you treated the car like that, for that period of time well you know, it, w- it wouldn't put up with it um and you know and that was that was still the case um right through the 60s into the 70s i mean i think it was probably i suspect if you talk to guys like jackie x and Derek bell when they were um driving in the late 70s and the early 80s um porsches I would think they would probably say, no, we could probably go pretty bloody quick. because, But that was because Porsche were engineering their cars, frankly, to a different standard to, 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 to anybody else. Uh, and they had synchromesh gearboxes, so they were much more difficult to break. Um, but I think really, I would say it, firstly be, it first became a 24-hour sprint, probably sometime in the late 1990s when the sort of BPR stopped and prototypes started coming back and you started getting cars like audi r8s um even the audi r8 first competed at Le Mans in 1999 um and i don't think that anybody driving that was holding back i'm sure they would have just gone absolutely flat strap from from start to finish um so i think that's probably when you know there, there was literally you know and, and the idea was if you couldn't build a car that would survive being driven like that for 24 hours and it broke that wasn't the driver's fault for breaking their car that was your fault for not building a car that was strong enough um and that's the way it it, it has been uh, ever since and the re- and the only reason that they're quicker in qualifying now 
uh, than they are in the race is obviously the tires are different the fuel loads are different um and, and and i suspect drivers are prepared to take more risks in quali with traffic than they are in the race um and also i suppose drivers you know if, if you're doing a qualifying like, like that you can probably take your brain out for one lap but even even the best modern drivers i can't believe that they can do you know a triple stint at quali pace mentally i just don't think they can do that but but certainly they drive the cars as fast as they can um during the race and they don't think about curbs uh, and they don't think about preserving transmissions and they don't think about oh we better you know we're leading the race by you know three laps but let's let's use fewer revs and and that sort of thing which they were always thinking about back in the day um and worrying about you know how long the brakes are going to last you know whether the clutch is going to give out uh, I mean, you know, back then, you know, drivers were chosen to race at Le Mans because they were known to be sympathetic to cars. Because if you didn't, um, you know, when Richard Atwood won Le Mans for Porsche in 1970, and he could choose his driver, he chose Hans Hermann to be his co-driver. Not because Hans was the fastest driver out there. He was, he was anything back, but frankly, he was right at the end of his career. Um, he, was, he retired at the end of the race. He was... You know, by the standards of some of the other maniacs who are out there, the, you know, the the Joe Siffords and the Pedro Rodriguez and the Vic Elfords of this world, you know, Hans Hermann was a plodder, but he was a reliable plodder and he got the thing round and he looked after it and they won the race. And that's what you had to do back then. It, it's just not like that now. Yeah. So even in the 1970s, it was like that. Um, if you could choose any era to be camped on at your favorite spot at the Porsche curves at 4 30 a.m when would it be I don't know, I've often thought about this um I mean well one I saw um which was group c when it was at its peak in the late 1980s and that was you know when you had all those cars from all those manufacturers you had I mean I won't remember them all but the you know, Porsche and Toyota and Aston Martin and Jaguar and Mercedes and Nissan and and and, uh, and Mazdas, um, <coughs> you know, and you had screaming V12s and shrieking rotaries and thundering V8s and rumbling flat sixes and all these cars, you know, going really, really fast because they had full ground effect bodywork. That was spectacular. Um, so I felt very privileged to have to have seen that i actually think more recently um when we had um those couple of years when the when the hybrids were closely matched so you had the toyotas and the porsches and the and the audis um and you had all those different configurations you had you know four-cylinder engines six-cylinder engines eight-cylinder engines you had hybrids with supercapacitors and with uh and with flywheels and with batteries and you had cars with rear wheel drive and you had four wheel four wheel drive and you had cars which were petrol and you had cars with a diesel blah, 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 and you stick them all that and they're still within like three tenths of each other i just thought that was simply astonishing i thought that was absolutely incredible but i guess um and you know this isn't going to surprise anybody um i guess if there was an era it would have to have been the early 70s the for want of a better phrase the sort of steve mcqueen lamore you know porsche 917 because that's when it was i think that's when the jeopardy was the highest i think it's when the cars were the most beautiful um i think it's probably when they sounded the best i think it's when the drivers were the most heroic um and you know it, it's like i guess it would have been like you know going to the isle of man tt when you do that and you see 
drivers coming out of their little awnings to go and get their bikes. You, you don't really see, you know, someone about to go and do a race. It, it's almost like watching someone go into battle. And they have that look about them. And there is that sort of gladiatorial quality, which we, we talked about. And, you know, I wasn't around at the time. I was sort of five, six years old. Um, but to have been there, to have seen that. I mean, I suspect that sitting here imagining what it must have been like, I think the reality might have been really quite different. Because, you know, let's not forget this was an era where Porsche was totally dominant. You know, they, in 1970, 1971... Um, which are the specific areas I'm talking about. They won almost everything. Alfa Romeo, Ferrari won one race. Alfa Romeo, Mother won two. You know, the 917s won everything else. So you're not talking about, you know, well, there were amazing tussles, but they were between Porsches. You know, where maybe it was the John Wire cars up against the Martini cars or the Salzburg cars or whatever. But it was, you know, it was very rarely Porsche versus Ferrari wheel to wheel because the Porsches were gone. So maybe there's a slightly rose tinted element to what I'm saying. And maybe if you were actually there and you're standing there, you'd be thinking, you know, I can remember, you know, in the in the 1980s, um, before I started to go to Le Mans. But, you know, from 1981 to 1987, so that's seven races on a trot, Porsche won every single race. And just thinking, oh, for goodness sake. And that's, you know, I think that's why, you know, when I did go in 1988 and a Jaguar won it, I mean, obviously there was a certain amount of pride in, you know, in a British car doing it and a car that was so beautiful and sounded so great. But, you know, I'm afraid it's an awful thing to say, you know, and I, you know, I'm, no one um, it, it admires Porsche more than me. But a lot of the joy was it wasn't a Porsche that was winning because they just won so much for so long. Um, and so those periods of extreme dominance, just like in Formula One, um, just like we've had recently. Um, and again, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, I have no problems at all with, you know, Max becoming, you know, the champion last year, um, as as is, um, was, you know, the relief that it wasn't another bloody Mercedes. And I mean, Mercedes, no ill in saying it. It's just, you know, it's just nice to have a change, isn't it? I think it's good for the sport to have a change. Um, and that's why, you know, I think balance of performance is, is probably quite important. You might have triggered a few people with uh, saying that, you know, those comments about Max and his first championship. If you want to know exactly how we really feel about that whole situation, we did an, an entire podcast about the Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, excuse me, um, the day after the race. So scroll back um, through through the podcast archive, you'll find it, and we talk about it in depth. Um, yeah, it's an interesting, actually, a really exciting January for motorsport because. We've got entirely new regulations for Formula One, um, and we hope round two of that epic title fight between Max and Lewis. We've got entirely new regulations in the World Rally Championship, um, and we've got, okay, so we know the hypercar sports car regs actually came in last year, but they come in sort of more fully this year. We've got more competition in the hypercar class at Le Mans this year. Um, it's just there's so much, so much to look forward to about motorsport in 2022 and beyond. Um, I think we're, we're going to track it quite closely, aren't we, throughout the year? I think we are because, I mean, I don't know whether it's a great thing, but the interesting thing, you know, when you ever, whenever you get a new set of regulations is things are never quite what you expect. And sometimes... You know, you you do get close competitions, uh, but and, and, but but sometimes you you, know, you just suddenly discover that someone's done their homework better than than anybody else, um, and then you can have a situation where you know 
for the for, for the whole of the duration of that particular set of regulations everybody else is just trying to play catch up so you know i really really hope that um that all those um forms of motorsport are as exciting as as we hope they're going to be we're certainly going to be very very close to it we're certainly going to be um keeping you know an amazingly close eye on everything that goes on but I, i'm just i just wonder whether it will be quite i mean i don't know whether there might be a, a certain sense of anticlimax to some of it but who knows It'll i think it's almost inevitable isn't it um and uh, yeah another thing that i just want to mention while we're on motorsport and things changing in 22 is yesterday um pro drive um it won it's so pro drive won its first Dakar stage um, and it was also the first Dakar stage win for a car powered by a sustainable plant-based fuel so they the ProDrive hunters run on ProDrive eco power which is made from agricultural waste which is an important point so it's not just a sustainable fuel but it's I haven't looked into it fully but on that basis it seems like a sustainable fuel that isn't coming from crops that might otherwise be used to feed people which is a big issue with biofuels um and according to prodrive that fuel reduces co2 emissions by 80% so on the stage that that car won um 3 tons of carbon dioxide were saved 3 tons by one um, car and pro and one car and pro drivers have also said that as long as your car runs a modern petrol engine that fuel will go straight in and it will run very happily on it um there needs to be a very mature and grown-up conversation around all of these alternative fuels because there'll be pros and cons and all sorts but i thought that was a really interesting moment in time and hopefully it will it will have a positive impact on other forms of motorsport and perhaps for road cars as well and and yeah and and it may yet prolong um the period of time that you know internal combustion engines which we all love um can stay relevant in in motorsport and 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 maybe in time you know that'll be long enough for people to find ways to get clean green environmentally friendly fuels into internal combustion engines you know and you know i i suspect that you know almost everything we drive going through in, in the future will be electric but maybe there will just be some that um aren't just to wrap things up on sports car racing then who are in your view the sort of standout drivers from across the ages we've already mentioned tom christensen who is um the record holder for le mans wins nine le mans wins which is incredible. Who yeah. else comes to mind? Okay, so starting at the very beginning, uh, Wolf Bonato, um, the chairman of Bentley. His Lamore record um, is is unequaled in, in in one sense, and I don't think anybody ever will equal it, equal it because he only did it three times and he won all three of them. So he has a back to back hat trick between nineteen twenty eight and nineteen thirty. Played three, won three. So you know, I definitely um, take my hat off to him. Um, other than that, guys, like, I mean, Derek Bell, um, just fantastic. Because you know, the thing about Derek was, you know, he was raced, you know, he first raced at Le Mans in 1970, I think, um, for Ferrari, sharing with Ronnie Peterson. Uh, car didn't last long because um, there was a massive accident, um, which took out a lot of cars, um, and his being one of them. But he was also, I think, he, you know, he was on the podium at Le Mans 
25 years later, yeah, um, sharing the Harris McLaren. And frankly, <coughs> but for a, a clutch issue, they'd have won that race. Um, and he was there with his son on the podium in the one. So that's 25 years um, during the course of which he also managed to win the race outright five times. Um, Jackie Yates goes without saying six times winner. Um, and yeah, I mean, there, there, there have been so many, haven't there, um, over the over the years. Um, and, and it's just interesting that they are, you know, there, there, there are obviously any number of Formula One drivers who've gone on to win Le Mans. Um, but I mean, I'm just trying to think, of Formula One drivers who've won the World Championship and then gone on to win Le Mans. I mean, there are some of them, um, Graham Hill um, among them. But, you know, Fernando. I think it's just... Yeah, Fernando. I think it's, but I think it is just a different discipline um, and requiring a different skill set, uh, as I said at the beginning of this. Um, and, you know, I don't think just because you're a wizard in Formula One car is any guarantee that you're going to, you know, sweep all before you um, in a sports car. Um it's another reason I love it all so much. So, yeah, so here's to a really cracking season. Um, I suspect the Le Mans to go to is going to be next year. Le Mans 2023 will be the year. I mean, Ferrari back at Le Mans. Just think what that's going to be like. Can you imagine what the gate's going to be like? Just how many, you know, the, the, the Tifosi turn up at Le Mans is going to be, you know, Ferrari versus Porsche versus Audi versus Toyota, um, you know, and everybody else in there. It's going to be absolutely, so, you know, so, so this year I think will be good. I think it'll be interesting. Um, but next year, I think it's going to be absolutely epic. I think it is going to be one of the one of the seasons of all time. Uh, and it will also be, uh, and this probably isn't a coincidence knowing the ACO, um, the 100th anniversary of law. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. Well, so, um, so let's, uh, yeah, let's have lots of fun this year, but um, always with a mind to next year being the one where it really kicks off properly. Yeah, and we'll have to make sure we're there, definitely. Um, good okay well we'll leave that one there thank you everybody for listening thank you to JBR Capital for sponsoring the podcast Um, and if you'd like to do us a favour and I hope you will please rate and review the podcast that's how it's really one of the main mechanisms we have for finding a new audience and making the podcast bigger and better so please do rate and review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you can Um, and as ever we'll be back to talk to you all again next week all the best Deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.